Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? How can we reconcile the existence of a loving, all-powerful God with the reality of human suffering and evil? This syllogism by the Greek philosopher Epicurus addresses the problem of pain. This apparent inconsistency has led many non-Christians to reject investigating Christianity and has led many Christians to question their faith. Thinkers have been wrestling with this issue for centuries. It's one of the most common and powerful objections to the Christian worldview. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing the tension that exists between human suffering and the God of the Bible. Hi, this is Jerome. And this is Grant. Welcome to Reconciled, our podcast where we explore how Jesus finds us where we are, wherever we are, and leads us to where we need to be. Thanks for tuning back into another episode. You know, Jerome, we were going to get to this topic, I think, at some point, but given the current circumstances, it really brought it to the forefront of our minds and I think really society's mind overall. Yeah, people's response to the outbreak of COVID-19 has sort of sifted the population into a couple of categories, you know, and this happens with all crises. We all respond differently, and people of faith, even within um, the umbrella of, of people of faith, we respond differently. Some people find comfort, and they find security in God, and their problems actually cause them to draw near to God, while other people are driven further away from God because they see suffering, they see death on a major scale as incongruous with the existence of a loving God. Yeah, and I think for most, there's kind of this established perception of Christianity's response to pain, right? Mm -hmm. It's that Christians are ignoring or diminishing the reality of pain, kind of the whistling past the graveyard type of saying. Right. You know, we tend to respond to catastrophes with two extremes. Um, Christians sometimes try to rationalize it. Um, They try to offer explanations for suffering. But really, this isn't our place. Uh, The Christian's role is not always to explain what's happening in the world and why it's all happening. You know, we can, there's a difference here. We can certainly try to view pain and suffering through a biblical framework and, and, you know, learn lessons along the way. But we have to resist the temptation to assign specific reasons for pain and and, and suffering, like this outbreak of of this virus, you know, because you'll usually end up with a bogus quasi-biblical interpretation of current events. So rationalizing and offering explanations is one extreme. And then the other extreme is like downplaying the darkness, just glossing over the suffering and the evil in the world. It's like saying, yeah, you know, Bad things happen, but the Bible tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead and he promises to make everything right someday. So we really shouldn't worry ourselves about this because everything is going to work out in the end. There's a there's a happy ending, you know. Uh, now, neither one of those responses are particularly helpful or or properly address the issue of, of human suffering. Yeah, obviously, this this is a large and complex topic, right? Mm-hmm. It's one of the great ancient questions. And, you know, one that I think asks us to explore not only what the Christian worldview says, but also how other worldviews deal with the problem of pain and suffering. So that's why um, we're not going to be able to cover all this in just one episode. So over the next few episodes, we're going to be looking at the problem of pain from several different different angles. So 
every worldview has to, like you said, wrestle with this issue. And each worldview approaches the problem differently. We live today in a pluralistic society where every worldview is considered equally valid. You know, where one way of believing and one way of thinking is just as good as another. And it's generally frowned upon, you know, viewed as arrogant or narrow-minded to suggest that there's only one view or that one view is better than the other. But what we want to focus on today is thinking through these, they're really not equally logical. So the first question we have to ask then is whether or not the Christian worldview logically addresses the existence of pain in the first place. Mm -hmm. So Epicurus, who wrote the poem that we just read, he would suggest that it doesn't. So using his syllogism as an outline, kind of what are our options? Let's walk through those. Yeah, if you boil it down to its simplest form, there are four options to consider. So let's start with one that many people will be familiar with. So option one is that God does not exist. This is the atheistic worldview. So in the poem, he says, is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? So atheism is a compound word. It uh, starts with the Greek first letter of their alphabet, alpha, which means negative, and theos, which means God. So anti-God, negative God. There is no God. Now, it's important to note that an atheist is not saying, I think there is no God, or there might not be a God. What the atheist is actually saying is that there is no God. Um, an atheist is affirming absolutely the non-existence of God. Now, affirming an absolute negative is philosophical quicksand because there's no way to be absolutely certain that a thing does not exist. It would be like me saying, you know, there is not a white stone with red spots anywhere in this, the galaxies of this universe. You know, the only way I can confidently say that is if I had an absolute unlimited knowledge of the entire universe, which isn't fair to say the least. So is that why we see a lot of people stop short and maybe move more towards an agnostic view? I think so. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of honest skeptics out there who realize um, atheism is a lot more difficult to defend. And so they'll tend to backpedal to a kind of soft agnosticism. And again, definitions are important here. Where atheism means anti-God or there is no God, agnosticism means anti-knowledge or there is no knowledge. So the agnostic is saying there is just not enough information to know if there is a God. But even with this view, you do run into the same problem. You know, how can we really say, I know that I can't know? So let's put the two views together then. So how does a person account for evil and suffering in a world without God? And how does the modern secular mind deal with the problem of pain? So this worldview, the atheistic worldview or the modern secular worldview, denies the existence of anything supernatural and believes that all of reality can be explained through science. And the only real world is, you know, what's right around us, what we can hear, what we can see right here and now in this material universe. Now, practically speaking, this worldview just doesn't equip people to handle suffering very well. You know, the secular mind has trouble coping with pain because they're attaching their meaning and purpose in life to things in this physical world. Good things, you know, things like your career or your your family or your marriage or your children, something like that. But the thing about suffering is it takes those things away from a person. So the atheistic worldview leaves a person in pain 
without the tools to practically cope with it because there's no hope beyond this life and all the things that we attach significance to, suffering takes away. But atheists do acknowledge the reality of evil in the world, and they're just as outraged by it as anyone else. So, so that seems like an interesting point. So speak a little more to that. So the atheistic worldview does recognize the existence of objective evil in the world. Right, and that's an important point to make because the admission itself that objective evil exists necessitates the existence of objective good in the universe as well because we measure that which is evil against that which is good. Right? The, the problem the secular mind has is the standard of measurement they're using. If an atheist gets his car stolen, you know, he's, he has a right to be angry because he has suffered an injustice. But the problem is explaining why he thinks the world should be a just world in the first place. If there is no uh, transcendent morality, no higher ethic that we can point to for what is right and wrong, then any ethical pronouncement um, an atheist makes is purely subjective. So at that point, he's having to define right and wrong in his own terms. Exactly. You know, and who's to say one person's measuring stick is better or worse than someone else's, right? So option one, God does not exist, and that would be this atheistic worldview. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really have an objective standard to measure right and wrong, good and evil. But if there is a God who is good and full of love, then can we measure our morality against him? Yeah, that's the right idea. Okay, so that that's option one. But Epicurus says, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. So that brings us to option two. Uh, and that would be that God is an imperfect being, that he lacks power. So this view allows that God exists and allows that God is good. And he loves people and he hates to see them suffering, but he just doesn't have the power to solve the problem of evil. So God is still moral, but he's weak. You know, for example, Grant, I can't criticize you for being immoral if you can't bench press 300 pounds. I'm assuming you can't bench press 300 pounds. <laughs> that would be right. But that's that's not the picture of God that we have in the Bible. I mean, page one starts off with he created the heavens and the earth. He speaks it into existence. Mm. And we see him displaying his power all throughout the biblical narrative. In Exodus from Egypt, at Mount Sinai, to the invasion of Canaan, and his power over the kingdoms of the world. So so how do we how do we bring those those visions of God together? Yeah, that's, you're right to bring that up. The Bible claims that God is all-powerful. Uh, and you're right to quote Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 from the very start. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first proclamation. That's the first time we get to know who this God is and what he's all about. That he's a creative God. He's a powerful God. Now, if God created the universe out of nothing, and this is what people call the cosmological argument, then it's rational to think that he is all-powerful. If you think about it, what can be more metaphysically strenuous than making everything out of nothing? So it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. There are no degrees of difficulty with omnipotence. So if God created the universe, then he must be all-powerful. If God created the universe, then he must be powerful enough to deal with the problem of pain and to solve the issue. Okay, so let's let's flip to the last one then, because Epicurus says, is he able but not willing? Then why, then is he malevolent? So option three must be that God is all-powerful but not morally good, 
Mm. Uh, again, this it's not really the portrait of God that we have in the Bible. Certainly not. Exactly. So, you know, like we said in our last uh, episode, God is love. Love describes his essence and his nature. The Christian worldview uh, answers this logically with something called the moral argument, which actually ties into our first option. Uh, the moral argument says that the reason why every human being has an inner conscience, um, an inner sort of compass about right and wrong, is because God created us that way, with this moral dimension to our character. The Bible says, again, going back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, we were created in his image, meaning we're meant to reflect God's own good character. So within every person, regardless of the society they lived in, regardless of the way that they grew up or when they lived in history, within every person, there's a sense of morality that is fixed. It's not relative. It's not subjective. It's universal and it's objective. So you, if you go back to the example of someone you know, waking up and going outside and they discover that their car has been stolen, why should that person feel he has been wronged? Why should he feel that he suffered an injustice, you know, whatever he believes about God? The most sufficient explanation for that feeling of injustice, for the existence of that objective morality, is the existence of an omnibenevolent or a God who is all good, who made us that way. And a good example of this is um, during the Nuremberg trials, when the leaders of Nazi Germany were being held to account for their war crimes during, um, through the Holocaust, there was this fascinating question. The prosecutors were all asking themselves, like, how are these guys going to defend these acts of evil? I mean, the, there was just this mountain of condemning evidence. I mean, and it was not only clear to them, it was clear to the rest of the world how heinous these acts were. And basically, their defense was that they were only obeying their nation's laws. They were just following their superior's orders. Therefore, they shouldn't be held guilty for their actions. But prosecutors saw right through this uh, and didn't recognize this as a valid defense. In fact, what they did was they appealed to a law that transcended the laws of national Germany. And that's the way it is with all of us. We have laws that govern society, but there are also laws which transcend those that's that objective morality that is wired in us by God himself. Okay, so let, let's take a minute and review. So, because it seems like we've laid out three options here mm-hmm. so far. So option one is God doesn't exist. But this view doesn't help us deal with pain on a practical level, nor does it have any way of measuring good or evil. Mm-hmm. Option two, we there is a good God that exists, but he doesn't have the power to stop human suffering. This view, we're saying, would be flawed because if God created the universe out of nothing, then there isn't anything that's too hard for him to do in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then option three, that there is a powerful God that exists, but he isn't willing to do anything about human suffering. The problem with this view is that it doesn't account for the universal experience of morality and justice that exists within all people. Yeah, so that leaves us with our fourth option, and that the God that we read about in the Bible does exist. Now, this is called the theistic worldview, and I think it's the most logical worldview. You know, the existence of an all-powerful God accounts for creation, and it offers us hope that he's strong enough to deal with the problem of evil and pain and make it stop someday, which is exactly what the Bible claims. 
And then the existence of a good God who is full of love, that accounts for the human conscience and the universal sense of morality. And this too gives us hope that he's actually willing to solve the problem of pain. So today we obviously spent some time digging into the logic of this, but in the coming episodes in the series, we'll talk about the practical benefits of believing in and trusting the God of the Bible through our suffering. Next time we plan to answer Epicurus' question, is God both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? How do we fit the reality of a broken world and the existence of things like the coronavirus into the biblical narrative? Join us next time for part two of this five-part series on the problem of pain. Jerome, thank you again, and thank you all for listening. Thank you.